The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll be talking about whether audiences are getting tired of dramas, the looking finale, and shows that continue on as movies. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Here with Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hey, Jen. Hello. And you know, Matt is out of town this week, but we've got one of our podcast regulars and Vulture editor, Alex Jung, with us. Hi. Hi, Alex. Thanks for Hi, having Alex. me again. Welcome back. Thank you. So this week, we wanted to talk a little bit about something we've been noticing brewing for a little while, and I, I think it's become a little bit clearer uh, with these two big summer shows we have going on right now, Unreal and Mr. Robot, which were like probably the biggest shows of the summer last year and arguably also two of the biggest shows of the year. They were new from new creators. You know, everyone was super excited about them. So they were really highly anticipated going into their second seasons. And it's starting to feel like, you know, we'll we'll talk about this a little bit. Both shows are kind of struggling a little bit in their second seasons. Mm. Um, but it feels like it's indicative of possibly a larger sense of drama fatigue am- among audiences. The parallel thing that's happening is they're not really ruling the conversation as much, aside from shows like Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead, where this is, you know, in part due to all the competition that's going on from... You have dramedies like Master of None and Transparent, limited series like People vs. OJ, Fargo, and then you even have documentaries like Making a Murderer and The Jinx that, you know, it, it's just starting to feel like this kind of prestige drama that used to be the dominant source of conversation when it comes to television isn't necessarily able to, um, not able to, but it, it doesn't kind of hold the same weight that it used to in this kind of new media streaming world we're living in well i wonder if those are two sort of separate questions like one being a question about genre and then the other being a question about second seasons and like whether or not how you create a strong sophomore season and i at least like because at least with unreal and mr robot both of those shows felt very fresh last year and they felt like they were bringing in new ideas like mr robot about technology and paranoia and also the role of like you know, economic foundations and whether you should resist those or not. And then Unreal had a sort of great idea about reality and TV and what, how you play with that genre. And, and I think that felt very fresh at the time. It's just that those ideas don't seem to have progressed in the second season at all. Right. Well, I think with, with Mr. Robot, to be fair, we haven't seen as much of that second season yet as we have of Unreal. Totally. So like I, I was actually intrigued by the premiere, which was really two episodes back to back. Right. And then it was that third episode, which aired last week, where, yeah. as I was telling Gazelle, I'm like, I don't know what's <laughs> yeah. going on. Yeah. It's, I'm I having mean, it a was, really hard time. It was confusing. It, and it, and I think, you know, the knives were out after that. You know, yeah. people were ready yeah. to kind of be down on it. That's true. Um, 
And I do think, I think they are separate questions, but I think they're kind of linked too, because mm. I do feel like preferences are kind of slowly moving towards things that aren't as long. So if something isn't going to keep your interest at this point, you're like, why would I spend my time watching that when I could just watch a... Right. A million other things. Million other so, you know, there's right. a lot of Thanks. choice, but <laughs> but there's also a lot of choice that doesn't require as much investment of your time. Right. And there is the fact that I think with a prestige drama like Mr. Robot, which takes itself so, so seriously, when it doesn't feel like it's actually it doesn't actually have many ideas there. <laughs> and I think maybe the second episode sort of felt like that. It felt a little insubstantial. It felt like a lot of bluster and not a lot of actual substance i think that's mm -hmm. when and that to me is a hallmark of a prestige drama is that it sort of takes itself seriously and it has these important ideas about humanity or society or the economy or whatever and when you don't see those actually being fulfilled i think people are going to be harder on you right maybe, than a sitcom which which sort of it's like the john stewart thing where he sort of would downplay himself in the comedy and like The Daily Show by being like, oh, well, you know, I follow puppets making crank calls. And so that was his way of, you know, downplaying how important he was in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I think comedy sort of has that soft, low expectation to work with in some ways where they're like not as not considered as weighty at first. But because of that, they can swing harder sometimes. I also think there's a parallel happening on the two shows we're talking about, Unreal and, and Mr. Robot, and it's a it's starker on Mr. Robot, where, you know, this is the first season where Sam Esmail, who's the showrunner and the creator of the series, is directing every single episode. Mm -hmm. um, that didn't happen last season. <clears throat> and then similarly on Unreal, you know, you have Sarah Gertrude Shapiro, who was the co-creator, who is now, you know, really kind of doing this more on her own without Marty Noxon, who left Bye, the show. Marty. They, do, <laughs> they do have a new showrunner, Carol Barbie, but... They do, but, yeah. But it is. I mean, it's, 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 it does feel like Marty. She's not directing every episode, right? In right. In the same way that Esmail is. I mean, she and and they they deserve actually a lot of credit because they're bringing in a lot of uh, female filmmakers to do the directing, including Sherry Appleby, who's the star of the show. Um, but but I think there's been a change kind of behind the scenes on both of those, where maybe um, you know you're seeing slightly different vision mm -hmm. than what was running it in in the first season again more so i think on mr robot perhaps than than unreal right um but but some of maybe those changes are are also bleeding into what is resulting on the screen there was also some discussion online that maybe what's happening here is you know as you were saying alex both of these shows have such compelling premises that maybe not all that much has actually changed mm. but we were willing to overlook the flaws of these shows in the first season because it was so new and interesting. Whereas this season, you know, right. the scales have shifted a bit where the flaws are a little bit more glaring. They're a little more apparent. Yeah. And I, I do think, though, that Unreal in particular, since we've seen more of it, I don't think that that argument quite holds for that. At least not. At, at least I wouldn't put it entirely on that just because I feel like there's a lot going on that it's just not able to handle well. Like the race theme this season, they just aren't quite hitting it home there. And just the larger world building that they did in the first season feels lacking here in terms mm. of having these contestants that have all this humanity that really makes you kind of give, gives you this gives you this view into the reality TV world and how brutal it is that this season is just completely lacking. Yeah, I mean, I think what was interesting to me about the first season, uh, and it was something that was embedded in the Rachel character, but it also reflected um, 
at least in my case and probably some other viewers' cases, how we feel about watching The Bachelor, which is it's fun and it's it's hilarious to like watch it and kind of pick it apart on Twitter. But there's also a sense of should I really be supporting this show that is is kind of mired in a lot of really dated stereotypes about gender? Um, you feel this kind of conflict uh, internally sometimes when you when you watch a show like that. And I think Unreal really smartly it was still sort of a guilty pleasure kind of show because there was all that kind of soap opera drama going on, but it smartly kind of poked holes in that and tapped into that sense of conflict that you have and reflected that through what Rachel was going through as a feminist working on a show like this. Uh And I think, I feel like this season it's gotten a little bit further away. I mean, it's still about Rachel's issues, but she, uh, and I don't know if you guys read the New Yorker article about Unreal that Mm -hmm. was in the Uh magazine about a month ago, but they were talking about how like, um, you know, the Lifetime uh, executives really don't want – they want it very much to be like Rachel needs to constantly be invested in Everlasting. She cannot – because the truth is she would have walked out of there by now. Like she she would have figured out a way out. But they, right. they have to keep pulling her back in. And I think the more they force that, it, it feels exactly that. It feels a little bit forced. I remember thinking after the first season ended, there was there was a lot of conversation around what they could do for the second season. And I thought – and I think a lot of other people thought that – why not do a completely different show, right? Like, why does it... It doesn't have to be The Bachelor all over again. They have a full slate of reality TV to pick from. Uh, and and I think that choosing that format, once again, sort of makes it feel more dated and more tired like in this, some ways. Like you're watching the same thing, but a lesser version of it. And right. I think that they thought right. taking the race angle right. would Freshen be it up. a fresh... But it just... It feels like taking on race has really been a struggle for them in terms of, you know, what you were talking about, Jen, where you have this kind of, they're poking holes at Mm. at these, you know, this whole satire element. It's becoming more difficult for them to toe the line between, you know, just enacting reality TV show tropes and making a commentary on them, where it feels more like they're just enacting them without the commentary. Mm. Like when they cut Ruby, I just was so disappointed because she was, she had become the most interesting contestant. And then they cut her in this way that is supposed to, you know, make a commentary on how black women are treated on these shows. But it just felt like, you know, we were just starting to get to know her. Mm-hmm. Why don't we why don't we try and subvert this a little bit by mm-hmm. maybe keeping her around for longer? And I, I, I hear she's coming back in future episodes, but it does feel like it kind of it didn't quite pack as much of a punch because of the timing of when they did it for me. Mm. Um, right. I, I mean, when I initially reviewed the season, that was based on the first two episodes. And I thought bringing the race issue into this, especially because The Bachelor has famously never really had an African-American suitor, I thought that had a lot of potential. I thought they were going to be able to do something and take it in a more interesting direction. And, you know, as we talked about after last week's episode with the whole um, police arrest and, and the shooting and then Rachel's subsequent breakdown, uh that was a really tricky episode that just didn't quite work because um, it, it, it once again, it made it all about Rachel and how this was Im- impacting her. Right. And obviously the show is about her. Um, but to take an issue that is really about how um, African-Americans in this country, we, we don't understand them. We don't understand what they're going through. Those of us who are not uh, part of that community and then to tell their story through somebody else's Viewpoint. I mean, I, I think even just some slightly different choices in terms of the way it was directed or edited, um, you know, showing us a couple of other viewpoints before shifting it entirely to Rachel might have made a world of difference in terms of the way it landed. Because I know that 
um, Sarah Gertrude Shapiro and, and the people who worked on that episode, um, you know, I, I think they really thought long and hard about how to do it and how to do it right. But it just didn't come off the way that they were hoping to do so. Right. And I think that that's in part, I mean, I feel like last season we were so connected to Adam Cromwell. Mm-hmm. And this season they really, it doesn't really feel like they've done as good of a job with Darius's character. Hmm. And, you know, this is the case with all of the new characters this season, all of the contestants. So it kind of, you know, it kind of removes those layers of emotion that you might feel. Like, I think Angelica Jade Bastian, who writes our recaps for this, noted in her recap that, you know, when this whole shooting scene happened, you feel terrible because of it reminds you of what's happening in the real world. You don't feel terrible because of the characters on the show and right. because of the storytelling. Right. So that's really not how it should work. Like it doesn't right. really work within the world of the show. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm curious to see how they will handle it in the next few episodes because, you know, last season we also had a death, Mary's character, mm-hmm. and they also focused on Rachel a lot in terms of how it affected her. But I did like how they kind of, they focused on the contestants as well and like how they were feeling. And it felt like, you know, the show definitely kind of had these moments in the first season where it did veer towards, is this too soapy? Is this going too far? But it kind of was able to stay on the side of not too far. So again, I'm curious to see how they'll handle this, if they'll be able to kind of treat it in a way that is a little bit more resonant. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that by making it all about Rachel, they're trying to show just how clueless she is um, because she, it didn't even occur to her that it could escalate to the degree that it did. Um, but right. at the same time, it's like they're the show is becoming Rachel, too. <laughs> the show right. is doing exactly what it's criticizing right. Rachel for doing. And, and I think that's what I don't know if that was the intent or not, if they're trying to go that meta on it. But it didn't feel like that was what they were trying to do. It just felt like they were trying to do something meaningful that didn't land it's well intentioned (laughs) um yeah and you know with mr robot again we still have we still have still got a long way to go Still got a long way this season is even longer it's 12 episodes instead of 10 um but so far the way i'm feeling is a little bit of confusion again in terms of the world building in terms of what exactly is going on after this um hack was pulled off at the end of last season and I want to see what the end of the world would have looked like. <laughs> yeah, that's well, what's so weird. And I, I know, I can't remember if it was Matt who said this or somebody else said it in a piece. Like, it doesn't feel like anything is all that different. Right. Yeah. Really Everything happened. seems to be, other than, you know, people getting shot in bars, um, which that happens in the real world too, sadly. Like, it doesn't feel like it's some, you know, post-apocalyptic or, or economic post-apocalyptic equivalent. It feels right. like everything's kind of still operating as it did before. Right. And the only part that I sort of liked was when the woman was at the bank uh, trying to prove that she had paid her bills, right? And that was such a mm-hmm. tiny moment that actually mm-hmm. gestured to what was what might have happened, what the repercussions of right. this action would have been. And to not see that is so, I don't know. It feels like a failure of the imagination in some way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that might be harsh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're trying to do too much too. You know, with a lot of shows, I feel like they try and have too many subplots going on. And we still have the whole B.D. Wong character who's Mm -hmm. supposed to come back, who I'm very curious to see what's going on there. But So there's just a lot 
going on that they're juggling. And they're also introducing new characters like uh, Grace Gummer's character. And, you know, we're having to kind of get acquainted with them. So it's just a lot. And I think the second episode or third technically. Yeah. I'm not sure which one it technically is. Uh, I think well, they, they actually they, they listed the, the premiere oh, as do. two episodes. Oh, okay. Weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, you know, that third episode really highlighted all of these issues. Yes. Um, and, and it's funny, that third episode, you know, I had watched Comet, the movie that Sam, Sam Esmail made before he did Mr. Robot. And a lot of the issues that I was having with that third episode reminded me of what didn't work about that movie, um, which... You know, it was very much like a sneak preview in terms of what his style was going to be. Visually, it's very similar where you have, you know, the characters are always kind of pushed to the edges of the frame. And he's just using a lot of the same flourishes in that movie that he does in Mr. Robot. Um, And a lot of the same themes are in it, too. But it's a movie that's about a romantic relationship and kind of hopping through time to different moments and, and figuring out what happened with it. And I think one of the problems with the movie is that there just wasn't enough of a a narrative spine to support all of the kind of vagueness um, mm-hmm. that was around it. And and I felt like in the first season of Mr. Robot, yeah, there were those moments where Elliot would be, you know, drugged out or you weren't sure what was real exactly and what wasn't. But there was a narrative spine enough that I was like, okay, I, I want to know what his relationship is with, is with Mr. Robot, what's really going on, and is he really going to pull off this hack? And there were other questions too, but those were the two central ones that that always kind of kept you tugging along, even if it got a little bit too much. Uh, whereas now I'm like, I- I'm not sure what I'm watching to find out. Right. <laughs> like, also, I'm not sure what I'm waiting right. for. And I know? don't know if I want any more Christian Slater. I, well, that whole oh, dynamic. Let's not, let's not get nuts. Uh, <laughs> but I do feel like we've watched three episodes of him having the same struggle. Right. And so, having the same you know, argument. The same, you know, I think that's enough of yeah. that. Although, you know, well, what is the show without that? I don't know. But I think that there could be a show without that where right. we're just following Elliot, at least an Elliot who's not having the same conversation with his alter ego father. Uh. I would watch an hour of Leon just talking about Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's sure. one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. Same. Well, Jen, you bringing up the movie actually reminded me that Mr. Robot was originally conceived of as a movie. Oh, huh. So, you know, it... It does maybe speak to what they were thinking in terms of, you know, what this, how long this story was supposed to be. Although I believe Sam Esmail originally said that the story really starts in the second season and the first season is like all a preamble to it. So, you know, he might have some master plan he's really working <laughs> that's towards. Such, that sounds so pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know what? I'm willing to. I liked the first season. You know, I thought it was really good. So I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and 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 keep going. And also because it's my job to do that, so <laughs> watching the episodes anyway. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's you can. I, I just I feel like it's teeter tottering on. You use the word pretentious, and and uh, it does feel like that. Like that. Yeah. Whatever that line was in last week's episode about the rainbow and the unicorn. Oh, with like, the one-legged oh unicorn peeing at the end of the rainbow, I believe. Control yes, is yes. a one-legged unicorn peeing at the end there of the rainbow. There we go. Group effort. <laughs> Actual wow, line. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just that that just was way into self-parody, unintentional self-parody. Right. I mean, I was I was talking to Gazelle about this before the podcast was that watching that episode made me think that 
like I was like, I think this is where camp is now. Like I've sort of wondered like what is camp now in this era? I think that is camp <laughs> because it's so ridiculous and I can't tell if it's actually um trying to be funny or not mm-hmm. or if it realizes that it's totally verged into self-parody. I think um, in some ways it must be aware of its own ridiculousness, but not they don't communicate that enough and to us. And they don't cut it with anything else. There's right. no other voice other than Elliot's. So you just sort of watch and you're in this world and you I mean, I feel like the viewer understands that it's ridiculous, but it feels like the the filmmaker or the TV show runners do not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about other dramas? Yeah. That, you know, you know, what what is the drama landscape look like right now we the good wife just went off the air you know mad men went off the air last year we have shows like the americans which i think people are still really obviously it doesn't have a huge audience but neither did mad men what a great show and an amazing show and it's on its fourth season and people are still really into it you know yeah and I was going to mention The Leftovers. You which know, that's, had, a, had a fabulous second season. Had a fabulous second season, which I think was able to get people back into it because it did this thing that we talked about a few episodes ago called the half reboot, where mm. it kind of reset its own premise, which allowed it to have renewed energy. And it mm-hmm. did it so well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Outlander had kind of does that every season as well, which I think I think fantasies are kind of a separate thing altogether because – People and these shows that are based on books because they have these rabid fan bases that mm-hmm. want to see the story. But regardless, I think having that kind of freshness with each season makes you want to come back to see how they're going to reinvent the story in a different context. Right. But so with the Americans and the Leftovers, one thing I noticed when they announced that the Leftovers would finish in its third season mm-hmm. and that the Americans would wrap up in its sixth season was kind of this sense of relief that yes. we know when the story is going to end. Right. It wasn't like, oh, it wasn't we, we need more situation. seasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like this infinite need for like more. Right. And I think that is something that is possibly changed in how we um, think about television and what type of storytelling it is and whether we want how long form we want it to be. And, well, I think it, it the feeling that it's a self-contained entity makes it feel like the storytellers know what they're doing and have a idea of the story they want to tell versus doing what networks want them to do. And obviously, I, I assume that those interests and needs need to be balanced constantly. But it does sort of feel like if you say, OK, there's going to be three seasons of this show, that's it, or six seasons of The Americans, then they're going to tell the story that they are able to tell within that time span and mm-hmm. and that feels like a like a weighty measured thoughtful way to present content in some ways than just sort of laying down the track and seeing how far you get i feel like we see that a little more frequently um with shows that are either on premium cable or or cable networks as opposed to um right the broader broadcast True. networks because the broadcast networks are more looking for let's let's milk this and keep this going as long as possible, especially as compared to something like HBO where they don't care about advertising so much, whereas ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, that's really important to them. Um, so it's easier to say like we've decided we're going to tell the story up to this point and then that's going to be it um, when you're not balancing some of those other concerns and knowing that you have a huge hit on your hands that you need to 
keep on the air as long as you possibly can. Part of it, too, I think, is that there's so much TV to watch that part of the sense of relief is not only, wow, they really they clearly know what story to tell. It's like, good, I can finish The Americans in two yeah. years, and then I'll know I'm done, and then I can make time to watch this other show that, you know, because it's just there's so much that it's like, it, it kind of helps you manage your to-do list. You know? <laughs> totally. Um, and it also helps, you know, I, I think this whole movement towards this type of storytelling, especially with limited series and anthology series, there's this kind of sense as a viewer that you can kind of come in whenever you want. You can come into Fargo season two without Mm -hmm. having watched Fargo season one. And it's kind of, it's just, yeah, there's, you only have so much time and maybe you just want to watch what's happening right now. So you can be in that conversation and not have to watch four seasons to kind of get to that point. Um, and I think people are really responding to that. I mean, I just think this whole conversation, too, is that we've been having both about what we're talking about right now and Mr. Robot and Unreal, it, it speaks to just it's really hard to do a, a TV show that is consistently excellent for season after season after season. And normally, I think what you see is is the flip side of what we were talking about with Mr. Robot and Unreal uh, and that we were touching on with The Leftovers where – you know, a, a show starts out in its first season and maybe it's still trying to figure itself out. And it's not really till it's like second season or maybe third season that it really understands what it is and gets as, as good as it can possibly be. Um, I felt that way with the Americans, that it yeah. it didn't get there until season two for me. Right. Season two right. is where it really started. Yeah. Yeah. Related to this idea, I wanted to talk a little bit about episode counts, too, because mm-hmm. a new show just premiered uh, – a couple weeks ago, a week and a half ago, Stranger Things on My Netflix. Fave. And everyone loves it. It's it's super fun. You know, it's it's just a great summer show. And yeah. it's eight episodes. It's not the standard Could have Netflix been seven, 13. Though. Not going to lie. <laughs> Alex wants to just <laughs> edit, edit, edit. I love it. Well, I love what do you want to edit? What do you want to take out? Uh, I think a, a, a little bit of the back and forth between, like, people not. So I get very frustrated when I feel like the mother, when Winona's character, was not being communicated with with and so like mm-hmm. everyone knew that she thought that there was this other world and this monster but no one was communicating that to her for a very long time and i felt like we could just cut, cut to the chase right <laughs> like we know that we're gonna have to like unite knowledge right. right and sort of figure this out together so let's just like skip to that point <laughs> it also felt very mean to just keep her in the dark when she's the one who's like a little emotionally unstable true anyway yeah I thought it could have done with one less episode. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, com- compared to Jessica Jones when, you know, I loved that show, but it was 13 episodes. It probably only <laughs> needed to be eight episodes. And I I think there's something – I mean, I, I don't know what changed here because I it does feel like 13 has been the Netflix standard mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, I, I guess maybe they just asked for eight episodes. Right. But I it – Viewers have really been responding to that length, and it just makes it more manageable. You know, I also you, want lean storytelling. You know, yeah, and you know, Alex, you mentioned also about Stranger Things is you you kind of wished it would just be a, a mini series, oh, and that really it didn't end it on a, a mini series, that it didn't end on a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, um, I, the cliffhanger really irritated me beyond <laughs> belief. Um, so you know, like that is an instinct that kind of that is. That is something that speaks to this as well. And just also, you know, Stranger Things fits into the whole supernatural show world where, you know, we've seen shows like Lost that kind of 
lose the thread. Right. So there's the fear of that too, yes. where, yes. you know, telling a neat story in this regard in a, you know, a world that can kind of become too unwieldy. Right. Is appealing. And also the <laughs> idea that like, I mean, I who knows what they would do for an ostensible second season, but the idea that you would sort of rehash all like the same world again with all of its references to the 80s. I, I just I don't want to see that again, I think. Like I sort of enjoyed having that as a capsule, as like this almost this little time capsule, this nostalgia time capsule. Mm-hmm. And I sort of would like to just keep that for what it is rather than have that reopened again for right. another season. Yeah, I saw a lot of people talking about it as kind of like a summer blockbuster. Right. You know? That's, yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, we it's, have it's, no it's... summer blockbusters. <laughs> 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 and, you know, it's so interesting because when I when I watched that, I was like, this speaks so much to me personally, just as somebody who grew up watching those movies. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't sure, like, whether the audience would be wide enough for it because certainly there are a lot of people who grew up on those movies, but I just wasn't sure if, you know, people younger than old lady me would care about it that much. <laughs> and uh, it's been just so interesting to watch the level of, of conversation about it on social media. I mean, it's one of those times when I, well, I always wish Netflix would release data so we could understand what it is that people are really consuming and how mm. uh, in terms of what they stream. But to the extent that social media is an indicator of, of how popular something is, like it feels like this is one of the more popular original Netflix series that they've had in mm-hmm. a while. And it's just snowballing right now. I feel like every, because like, the good word of mouth, it's just right. every weekend more and more people are watching it. To get back to what you were saying before about it being an eight episode thing, I, I think the the Duffer brothers and it's like, who are the Duffer brothers? Like they've emerged out I of nowhere. Know. <laughs> and they have a, that, you know, to call yourselves the Duffer brothers, I know. it sounds like you should know them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Somebody on Twitter messaged me today and they're like, do the Duffer brothers really exist? <laughs> I, like, I don't know how to respond to that. Um, but I think they envisioned it as an eight episode movie. Like they're telling this as a movie, like they, it was a movie idea in their heads and they thought, and that's part of the reason I think that it's not longer than it is. Although, to Alex's point, maybe it could have been even a little shorter. Just um, a smidge. It's <laughs> a tiny bit. Yeah. But, I, but I think that that, too, is informing maybe some of the, the choices that we've been talking about in that I think people are not thinking of I am making a TV show in the way that that was traditionally thought of. But I am telling a story and maybe it's more kind of cinematic in nature, but it's going to be in a TV format. So that means that I have this amount of time to tell it and any more would be too much, um, which is where the limited series things you know come into play. Um, but I just think people are not, um, to use a cliche, like putting themselves in a box as far as how they should be telling stories anymore. And I think that's why, you know, there's no standard for how many episodes there should be or how long an episode should be or anything else. It's like mm-hmm. whatever works. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No, we ran a piece last year by Joe Adalian at Vulture about how 10 was the new 13 right. was the new 22 right. episodes. Right. <laughs> you know, we're, you know, what, now eight is the new. Eight is the new right. Yeah. Like, I think those, that was the case for a while, you know, and it might be that it's becoming incre- increasingly irrelevant. Episode I mean, counts. I like that television as a medium is more malleable or allows itself that kind of uh, flexibility for people to do like for Sam Esmail to do like extremely long episodes or for people to tell like tighter eight, eight episode arcs uh, stories. Like I think that that is nice that I think that's why television is maybe in a sense more relevant as a medium right now than perhaps film is right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Although 
at the rate we're going, it's just going to be movies soon. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> We also have shows that are being continued on in movies or are ending in movies. And that brings us to The Looking Movie, <laughs> which just premiered last this past weekend. And that was the essentially a finale to right. the HBO series right. that had aired for two seasons. I sort of feel like it was more it, to me, it was HBO giving Andrew Hay and the actors like the showrunners an opportunity to say goodbye because I think that in a sense that you know if you get canceled after you just finished your second season on a slightly ambiguous note Mm -hmm. maybe the filmmaker wanted to tell more of a story and so to me it seemed like a gesture to allow them to do that right and that's a nice sentiment right like I I actually like and I think HBO has done this more than Mm. other networks I can't really think of are we going to get a vinyl movie too then? Oh my god! No, I don't. I don't think it'll pass muster. <laughs> I would love an enlightened movie though. I would oh, love that a lot. Oh, yeah. Jen, totally speaking to the choir. I would <laughs> love that. That is such a good idea for sure. Um, yeah, no, I mean, and especially show like shows like Enlightened, where like it just should have gone on. I, I, it was like such a beautiful story that yeah. was so. It was just so short. I felt like there was more story to tell <laughs> there. There was more story to tell yeah. there. But with looking, what did Alex, what did you think? You've watched you watched the first two seasons. How did you think the movie did in terms of wrapping things up? I did not feel like it was necessary as a film for me personally. I sort of liked the ambiguity of how the second season ended. Uh, I, I rewatched the finale episode, which becomes a de facto series finale, if you thought of it that way. And I kind of liked how it ends with him leaving uh, Kevin after they had just moved in and then getting a haircut from Richie. And then Richie... And then him asking for a buzz cut and Richie asking, are you ready? As he's like holding the buzzers. And I sort of, I, I, I like that as a metaphor. I like that as as an ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the need to sort of weigh in on the love triangle felt like a little bit, I don't know. It's it's fine. It was fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it was fine to be, revisit these characters. It was fine to be in their world again. I mm-hmm. don't, I don't hate the show the way that I think a lot of people did. Um, but nor did I effusively love it. Um, right. It felt like a very specific world that was nice to visit. Um, and I was happy to be there. So like uh, in terms of a 90 minute movie, sure. Why not? Right. Yeah, no, it, it almost felt more like an episode of television to yes, me. Yes, yes. Like, a long episode, yeah. 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 It, and Andrew Hayes, I think, best episodes for looking were the ones that felt like long sort of mini movies or little mm-hmm. vignettes. Uh, the best one is the fifth episode of the first season where uh, Patty, Jonathan Groff, and uh, Richie go on a date together. And they just spend the entire day together. And it's one of those dates where you wake up and then you get breakfast and then you're like, you know what, I'm going to skip work. Why don't we go over here? And it just sort of, it's one of those dates that keeps on going and it feels lived in like, like a great sweater. Um, <laughs> that you've had for years. And that, and I think that was the quality that Looking had in its highest and best moments that felt really beautiful. Um, I think as a TV show, it sort of 
struggled a lot because it 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 didn't quite know, I think, how to move the cultural dial in any way. Um, right. Do you think it had undue pressure on it? Oh, totally. Yeah. It was unfair. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I and I do find it funny, at least in uh, the movie, how Andrew Hay was clearly commenting on that with one of the characters, Brady, who was the like really annoying blogger character. <laughs> always a blogger. It's always a blogger. <laughs> Bloggers and are the worst. <laughs> they are the worst, especially that one. <laughs> and you watch it and you're like, like obviously he's like talking about me, right? Or like people like me right. who like commented on Twitter and like hated on the show so much and like basically brought it down, I think is how he sees it because he's this awful person who like screams about like queerness and policing gay identity or whatever right and i think that was the burden that andrew yeah. Hay felt that looking went through that it had to somehow represent the gay community and its concerns and its ideas when all he wanted was to all he wanted to do was tell this very specific sort of small story i mm-hmm. think I think his uh, I think his vendetta got the best of him in the finale with that personally. I did an experiment, which is I I watched it without having watched the show at all, ah. <laughs> partly out of necessity, yeah, uh, because I had always meant to watch it, and then and they canceled it, and I was like, oh well, okay, I guess I won't bother now, right? Um, right. But uh, but it was an interesting thing to see, like, okay, if something's being uh, characterized as a movie, could you enter into this movie and still be interested in it without having hmm. you know watched the whole show? And obviously. That show is a character study, and so it means a great deal more to you having been invested in those characters over however many episodes it was. Um, So I did have to kind of look things up and go, wait a minute, which person was involved in which relationship? Let me just get this straight in my head. But I still found it engaging to watch just because, I mean, it it was kind of the way you described that one episode, just kind of spending time with these people and being a fly on the wall and observing them. Um, but, but based on what you described and what I had read about the last episode prior to this movie, like it almost feels like it ended on the same note, which is Uh maybe he's going to be with Richie, but we really don't know what they're going to do, where they're going to be. Right. So there's still an element of ambiguity. So ultimately, did they need to get to that point twice or was it fine to have said it the first time? And and I'm not sure that they really, yeah, I I agree with you that I'm not sure that was really necessary. I felt like. I also I I watched, you know, a handful of episodes last season, so I had a feel for the show, but not an intimate, you know, uh knowledge of the characters, but enough to watch the movie and kind of get what's going on. Um and I, I kind of felt similarly, it was like fine. But I did I really like the filmmaking. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes the writing could be a little too pat and like trying to say things. Mm-hmm. Um and Whereas the filmmaking really brought me into certain moments, and like some some scenes were really well written, others I felt weren't as well written. But just what had what kept me kind of immersed in the show was kind of these moments that would bring these characters together, yeah, and that you just felt like the shots in the truly, club were great. The shots in the club, yeah, were they were so good, yeah. And I think what bothered me a little bit was I wasn't able to tell what the show's intentions or what the show's. Um, view of these characters were uh-huh. and what it's what it was trying to say right um in terms of like what the ultimate decision like Richie kind of being okay with being in a relationship right. with him like 
are we supposed to be happy? Are right. we supposed to be sad? Right. Are we supposed to think they're making a terrible mistake? Right. I have no idea right. what the show thinks about that. Right. It's a it's a little bit of the is it it's buying into is it buying into Patrick's worldview or not? Right. And I think you're mm-hmm. not really clear at the end of the day. Yeah. And another show I felt this way about was Hello Ladies that also had its finale in a movie. Um, mm. That was just one season. But I thought it was just I had so much potential. And this is Stephen Merchant, who also wrote for the British office. And I just the movie was fine. But again, it, it felt like it was trying to wrap up things too soon in this case that mm. would have taken maybe a couple seasons to fully develop in terms of a central relationship that you're just like, well, did I need to watch this sped up version of what the show should be doing mm. over a longer period of time but like you can't blame it because like you get you're given the opportunity to create a movie to end your story like you're gonna right. end it right it's like a very difficult thing to pull off right you know we've, we've seen this happen in many different forms like the the tv show movie finale is kind of a weird little hybrid of it on uh-huh. hbo but you know absolutely fabulous just released its its movie after how many years i don't know how many years it's been well 20 more than 20, 20 was yeah. when it started but i mean that, that show was weird in that it rolled out in the 90s a few seasons and then it came back again in the 2000s and right. the most recent specials that they have do- had done were in 2012 so it sort of kept sputtering back into the into the culture <laughs> um for a long time but yeah in terms of when its cultural peak was it was more than two decades ago i haven't actually seen the movie but you've seen it right jen yes uh, yes i did, have what did you think of it you know, I mean, I, I think that Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders are still really funny together. And, you know, there's something nice about seeing um, women, especially in comedy, who've been doing this for a while, getting the opportunity conti- to continue doing it, especially because Ab Fab in so many ways is a commentary on uh, how society deals with women aging. <laughs> um, and it's as if Jennifer Saunders, like, created this, uh, you know, and, and she wrote the movie, um, actually, you know, she's saying to us, like, we have a problem with women aging in society because it seems like it's, you know, appalling. So let me show you how appalling it is when, when two women refuse to age and they just act like complete idiots for their entire lives. Um, but I, I thought that as a premise, like the movie was a little bit thin. And I was thinking about it as I was watching it. Like if I were watching this at home, um, if it had been released on Netflix or HBO or whatever it may, may be versus being in a theater mm. – I feel like I would have had a different response to it. And it's not because film is, you know, the more prestigious medium. There's just something about like, okay, I'm, I'm watching this at home and, and they've done this and it's for TV and that and it felt more like it should have been done in that format than released as a movie. Because consciously or subconsciously, when they put something out as a theatrical feature, you're thinking to yourself like, man, that means they thought there's a really huge audience. They were spending all this money on marketing and all of that. Um, and then, you know – as a consumer, uh, if you're not going to a press screening, which is most people, you're paying a lot of money to, to sit there and watch the movie, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have that embedded in what you're doing when you're watching it at home. Um, so I felt like it actually would have worked better just being an abfab movie on TV, at least for those of us in the States. I think in the UK, it is such a universally beloved institution to a degree that it isn't quite here um, that it made more sense as a theatrical feature. You know, bottom line is I still I still like Jennifer Saunders and Joanna Lumley. I think they're great. But uh, did that need to be, you know, 
an 87-minute movie or however long it was. Eh, probably not. That's the takeaway here. Does it need to be this? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing I was thinking about is like what shows do we think merit coming back in movie form that haven't done it already? Like is there a TV show you can think of like, you know what, I actually would like to see that movie. I actually think that would be interesting. Or is it just too – is it too much of a risk to, you know, undo the, the cultural legacy of, of most TV shows to, to bring them back again? Yeah, I would, I would lean toward the latter just because it just doesn't feel – it feels like the formats are so different. Mm-hmm. Unless it really called for it story-wise to have a movie that's supposed to kind of be neatly packaged – as opposed, I I appreciate the episodic structure of television, and you know it makes sense to have an ending at the end of a season that kind of makes sense for that season, or for you know a, a series finale that kind of brings you to the end of your time with these characters. But to con- continue that on in a movie just feels like it's just a, a weird clone of itself in a way. Um, a weird clone that wants more money. Yeah, a hungry clone. <laughs> That's how we felt about Sex in the City. Like I, yeah. you know, I know that you said you liked the first one. I've never actually seen either of them because, in part, I was like offended by the idea that right. there should even be a film. <laughs> I no, I did like the. I I went to see it in theaters. Like I don't know, I was like very young and super into Sex in the City. Sure, the I mean, you know, I it was, was exciting. It. it was so exciting, and you know, I I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. The second one. Right, right. Not at all. I mean, all. I wasn't even like, going to touch so that. Like, so tone deaf about the Middle East and their interactions with people there. But I think part of what the, the what happened there was all the flaws of the show and these people become more glaring. Mm. When it feels more tone deaf when you have some time away, when, like, years have passed and maybe we're a little more progressive in what we expect mm-hmm. of our entertainment. Where, you know, there you look back at the show and, it, you know, it's not particularly, like, sure. s- you know... They say a lot of tone deaf things on the show Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot. And I think the show is great and I love it. And it's, you know, it's a wonderful time capsule. But, yeah, there's something about a movie where you're kind of seeing these characters and you're maybe not at the same place with them, but they're still behaving the same way. Uh And it just makes you a little sad. (laughs) (laughs) That they haven't grown up a little more. (laughs) I mean, I had the same reaction. I I actually liked the first Sex and the City movie. Um, and then the second one was just an abomination. It was horrible. And I think part of it was also because, you know, the first one had done well, I think maybe better than they expected it was going to do in terms of box office performance. And so uh-huh. there was probably pressure, like, make a second one. <laughs> and just in terms of what the execution was, like, it didn't even really feel at all connected to the TV show other than the characters were the same. But that it didn't feel like a Sex in the City episode. Right. It was just longer. Yeah, no, the, the first movie was like, it, it actually was that perfect case of it making sense mm. in terms of it continuing the story because it was the wedding. Right, it was okay. It was right. the big right. wedding and like you right. wanted to see the wedding mm-hmm. and you wanted to see how that played out and it just it it felt separate but it also felt connected enough to what you had just seen right. that it made sense. And the second and one also, was just them going to Yeah, Dubai. it was just like Sex in the City, <laughs> like, Dubai edition. like, am I understanding this yeah. correctly? Why were they on camels? Please explain. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I th- if I'm not mistaken, I think the, the first movie came out and it had been about four years since the show had gone off the air, mm-hmm. which was like just the right amount of time where it wasn't completely, you hadn't forgotten it, mm-hmm. but it felt like, you know, I haven't seen 
Carrie in a while. And I'd actually, oh, it's nice to see them again, you know. I think it, it, it worked on that level, whereas, um, you know, by contrast with something like Absolutely Fabulous, it's like if you if you hadn't been watching the show on Hulu recently, you're like, wait, who's Bubble again? Wait, who's that person? Like you had to – it had been a while probably right. for a lot of people since they had watched it. Um, I mean, I feel like with the, the TV show to movie kind of translation, um, either – so much time has gone by that it's like a completely different entity and they almost do it on like a meta level, like 21 Jump Street, where it has nothing at all to do right. with what 20, 21 Jump Street was really, um, but actually ends up being better than 21 Jump Street the TV show ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, or or there's the times where they're actually trying to do it straight from kind of in, in the same sensibility and in the same spirit as the TV show. And that tends to work better when the TV show is still kind of part of the cultural conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and the best example that I can think of that I thought was going to be a complete failure and is probably the best TV show movie adaptation ever is the South Park movie. Oh. Because oh. I remember when that came out and it was like South Park was had not been on for very long. In fact, I feel like it was still like in its first season or maybe its second. But it had been in the culture. It had saturated it so much that I was like, they're making a movie of this already. Like, uh, this is this just feels like it's over, you know. Mm-hmm. And and then the movie was just so amazing and and hilarious <laughs> and just took it to a totally different place um, than uh, I thought that they were going to be capable of. I'm curious. I mean, I'm a huge Gilmore Girls fan, so I am, you know, uh-huh. very, you know, nervously anticipating the. Not nervously. I'm more. I'm more optimistic, I would say, but there is that kind of fear that this is just going to be a disaster. And that's supposed to be 40, four 90-minute films. It's very Sherlock. Yeah. So they're <laughs> definitely taking the the movie approach in a way. And, you know, or the British TV approach. Like, or, or the British sort of TV right. approach, totally. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can't help but be a little anxious about how it actually pans out. Especially, Especially after all so this time hype. and so much hype. Oh, yeah. God, there's been too much hype. It's like, yeah, let's it's just not talk distressing. about it. <laughs> but speaking of British TV, like another one that's being talked about, like, will this be a movie is Downton Abbey. And Julian Fellows has said, like, oh, maybe I'll come back and do another movie. And that's when I'm like, you know, in some ways, yes, it would be nice to see the characters again. But in other ways, I'm like, I feel like the story was done when yeah. right. it got to the end of that series and, and in a way that I felt was actually very satisfying and I'm not sure that I need to see more of it but the one TV show that I was trying to think like what would I want to see a movie of and, and apparently it's enlightened I didn't even think of that until <laughs> no that was that was genius right there Jen um, but but I I also mm-hmm. feel like I and it's been talked about and it's never going to happen because of Kyle Chandler but I actually would like to see a Friday night I was gonna movie. I was gonna bring that Whoa. up but I don't know about that Jen I, well, I feel like also, I don't because so, the finale so, was so good <laughs> it was it was a beautiful finale it was <laughs> And what, but I think I, the concept that they've talked about uh, of dealing with a specific issue where he's coaching at the college level, like I felt like Peter Berg had a really specific story to tell and it was mm. going to be a lot more focused on um, Eric and Tammy. And God, I mean, I would love to see the two of them together again. I would love nothing more than okay, that. Okay, fine. So You're I thought right. That, I would too, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm and, on you the know, fence Tim Riggins can just pop in and be like, hey, what's up, guys? And then <laughs> do whatever he has to do. It sounds so nice in your head, you know. But I do trust Peter Berg more than I would trust most, I suppose. I mean, my worry would be that a film would need to cram all the characters back in, right? Right. Uh, Whereas what I liked about the show was that it felt like it let characters live a world and a life that, even if they weren't on camera, 
they were living their own life. So, like, Scott Porter's character, like, you knew he was in New York and he was, like, doing his thing. And he would sometimes pop back. Right. But it's so much about, like, kind of spying on these people and kind of watching them live their lives. And there's something beautiful about that. And a movie narrative requires something so much more... You know, if you're if you're taking a TV show and putting it into a movie, it requires everything to be serving a purpose and coming to an end. Right. And it just makes the dialogue more clunky. Right. It makes it, you know, you can't just kind of exist with them. And right. I think that's what is really... Like, unless they, they were to make a movie where they were totally fine with not bringing any of the old characters back, <laughs> except for Eric and Tammy, like, in their new life, I think that... Then maybe, but yeah. I I don't I doubt that that would happen. I think that they would feel that they have to bring Tim Riggins back. They would have to bring back of sort course. of Lila Matt and Saracen. Buddy Garrity and yeah QB one. You know, like they would have to sort of incorporate all these people back. And I would just be like, I don't know, guys. No, <laughs> I don't doesn't... know if they I don't know if they would have to or not. I, I mean, I, I think there's a way to do it as a contained story. I think it's the difference between saying. I actually have a story to tell that involves these characters versus, mm-hmm. right, hey, let's bring right. these characters back. Yes. Oh, and let's figure out what the hell we're going to do with them. Right. Like it, it felt like they had a concept for it. But right. The, the bottom line is Kyle Chandler doesn't want to do it. And you can't do it without Kyle Chandler. So. Right. <laughs> it's sort of a dead issue. <laughs> I mean, whatever. At the end of the day, it just needs to be good, right? <laughs> yes. Right. That's, that's really it. You're right. Just a little boy lost looking for lamb in the all-night city. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at CheneyJ. I'm Alex Jung, and you can find me on Twitter at E underscore Alex Jung. Thanks for listening. 